Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's easy to forget the impact particular books had on you as a young child until you have children of your own. Then familiar phrases at bedtime get stuck in your head. Soon you can recite these books with your eyes closed. Goodnight Moon is one of those books. Coming up, we learn about the woman who wrote that beloved children's book and so many others. Her name was Margaret Wise Brown. And the new book about her life is called In the Great Green Room. By telephone, we'll talk with the author later in the show. First, earlier this week, Where We Live took a drive up I-91 North to Springfield, the birthplace of an author like no other, Theodore Geisel. Look! A cat in a hat! You will note I am neat. Wiped my feet on the mat. On Saturday, the amazing world of Dr. Seuss opens in Springfield. We got a sneak peek inside the museum, and I'm warning you now, your children will never want to leave. The museum sits in a historic building, part of the campus of the Springfield Museums. Once through the front door, you're immersed in Seussville. Colors are everywhere, bright reds and blues, and the familiar faces of Dr. Seuss's many fantasy animals peek out from the walls. We visited three days before the official opening. Everything was still in flux. The sounds of busy workers pounding, sanding, downstairs and up. The president of the Springfield Museum's Kay Simpson says, despite what we are seeing and hearing, the official opening will happen this Saturday morning. We begin in the foyer, the drowning sounds of the floors being polished right behind us. Simpson tells us that standing here, we're transported into Dr. Seuss's first children's book. Dr. Seuss wrote, uh, and I think I saw it on Mulberry Street in 1937. One of the things that's always sort of interesting to know about this book is uh, before that, Ted Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, was an advertising executive, and he was very successful living in New York City. He wrote this children's book. It was rejected 27 times before it was actually accepted for publication. And I think that's really interesting because it's sort of one of the themes that you find in the books of Dr. Seuss is that you don't always succeed at first, but if you persevere, uh, you can overcome challenges and you can realize your dreams. And that's a great message, not only for children, but for adults. So with this exhibition on the first floor, we wanted to do two things. We wanted to explore uh, Ted growing up in Springfield and what he saw in Springfield and the experiences he had in this city that later influenced his books and his illustrations. So one half of the first floor is called Young Ted in Springfield. And so what you see when you go through this part of the exhibition is you see coming to life historic Springfield that young Ted knew in the early 20th century. And then from that section, Young Ted in Springfield, we go to Readingville. And Readingville really brings to life all the creatures that sprang from Ted Geisel's imagination 
in terms of these um, beloved creatures that populate his books. So why don't we go now into the first section of Young Ted and Springfield. This is a work in progress. Um, Ted grew up in the Forest Park uh, area of the city. Um, he lived in a house on 74 Fairfield Street, but he was actually born on Howard Street, across from the Howard Street Armory, which uh, we have a recreation of the Howard Street Armory. This is something that's going to be installed today. Again, it is in three dimensions, um, so it comes out from the wall. It's an interactive. Um, you will see people in uh, the windows of the Howard Street Armory, which is, it looks like a castle, essentially. And uh, the Springfield that Ted knew was filled with some great, uh, fantastic Victorian buildings and post-Victorian uh, monuments. And I think what uh, we are trying to do in this section is really show um, some of the influences um, that he took from the environment around him. So the Howard Street Armory is represented here um, in some of his books, for example, The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Cubbins, you see some of the uh, structures that look like they have turrets and are castellated. Uh, you can see how some of these sites in Springfield, some of these landmarks would have inspired him. At the back of this gallery, you see 74 Fairfield Street, the facade of that house where he grew up. And you walk through the door of this facade and you're in his bedroom. Now, one of the things that's so interesting about Ted Geisel is that his parents actually allowed him to draw on the walls of the house. And he used to draw pictures on the walls of his bedroom all the time. So we thought it would be really great to give kids the chance to do that. I mean, how many parents would allow their kids to do that? I mean, usually, you know, mothers or fathers are running after kids, like trying to wipe off the marks that they make. But instead, his parents actually encouraged him, encouraged his creativity. So we have this large, touchscreen drawing wall. It's computerized and we're inviting kids to draw on the walls of, of this museum just as Ted did when he was uh, a young boy. So from his bedroom you actually are going to go to an area. This is a three-dimensional display. This is going to be installed um, today and tomorrow. So everything in this section of the exhibit really relates to what is called uh, Ted Geisel's Springfield Cycle. So these are books that we can really trace um, to his childhood in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, when he was young, he and his father loved to go fishing. Um, so the book McGilligot's Pool is believed to be inspired um, by his experience of fishing with his father and how much fun they had. Uh, what's interesting about this book is that he actually experimented with watercolors. So instead of having large blocks of color, um, the fish that you see are all uh, in variegated colors. There's a lot of subtlety and a lot of shading. It's very, it's sort of more 
um, painterly, I guess you could say, than some of his other illustrated books. I think that he was someone who was always experimenting. He was incredibly creative. He dabbled with uh, surrealism and abstract art, and he was just always very innovative in his artistic expression. Today, where we live, we're inside the amazing world of Dr. Seuss. It's the new museum opening this weekend in Springfield. Theodore Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, was born and raised in the city. Our tour guide is Springfield Museum's president, Kay Simpson. She takes us into a room where we're greeted by beloved Seussian figures and images. The exhibition on the first floor is really um, separated in two distinct areas. One is Young Ted in Springfield, uh, which traces his boyhood in the city and the other area is called Readingville. And this is really an homage to those books that he wrote starting in 1957 with Cat in the Hat. And that's when he became very interested and focused on writing books that would get kids interested in reading and really encourage literacy. So the Cat in the Hat has very limited vocabulary, um, it tells the story of this wonderful creature, the cat in the hat, and things one and two, and kids loved it. And so that really launched the beginning reader series, and there's a whole number of books that fall into this um, group of, of stories that he wrote. Um, many of the exhibits in this area really uh, focus on reinforcing the skills that are necessary for kids to become good readers. Um, so recognizing letters of the alphabet and knowing how those letters sound is really a fundamental building block of reading. Uh, so with this interactive, again, it's based on the ABCs of Dr. Seuss, so you can see illustrations from that book. Uh, kids can press letters and hear the way they sound and actually spell out words. Uh, so this should be really fun for kids. And uh, that was part of his magic, is really to associate words and letters with these really fantastic illustrations to make it really memorable for kids. And again, it was all about making reading fun. That was his objective. So as you can see, everything in this area is really three-dimensional. Um, and there's some just very simple interactives. If you see the... Um, area over here, it features uh, the Wump of Gump, the Seven Humped Wump of Gump. And it's just something that kids can get on and play on, so it's a really just encouraging physical play. In the Lorax area, he wrote the Lorax, and actually it wasn't one of his most popular books, but at that point in his career, he was writing stories. Again, it was always fun, but there was a message, and this was a message about the environment. Um, so we will have uh, hands-on activity in this space, uh, which is about recycling and the importance of conserving the environment. So we've progressed from Young Ted in Springfield, which is when he was a boy through Readingville, that part of his career when he was really focused on, on reading and literacy. And we end up in Oh, the Places You'll Go, 
Uh, this is the last book that he wrote. It is a wonderful, inspirational book. It's the one that is most frequently given uh, to students when they graduate from high school or college. And just going back to that idea that um, Ted was someone who persevered in his life and um, you know, you don't always first succeed, but you have to try, you have to persevere, and if you do, um, you will succeed. And as he said, kid, you'll move mountains. Oh, the places you'll go, there is fun to be done. There are points to be scored, there are games to be won, and the magical things you can do with that ball will make you the winningest winner of all. Fame, you'll be famous as famous can be with the whole wide world watching you win on TV. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. CB, we see a B. CB3, now we see three. Three tree, three fish in a tree. Fish in a tree, how can that be? You hush up your mouth, howled the mighty King Yertle. You've no right to talk to the world's highest turtle. I rule from the clouds, over land, over sea. There's nothing, no, nothing that's higher than me. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Black fish, blue fish, old fish, new fish. This one has a little star. This one has a little car. Say, what a lot of fish there are. He picked up the cake and the rake and the gown, and the milk and the strings and the books and the dish, and the fan and the cup and the ship and the fish. And he put them away. Then he said, that is that. And then he was gone with the tip of his hat. This is where we live. After the break, we continue our tour of the amazing world of Dr. Seuss. It's the new museum opening this weekend in Springfield. The city is the birthplace of Theodore Geisel, who became known as Dr. Seuss. What were your favorite Seuss books growing up? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Theodore Geisel was born in Springfield in 1904, the son of German immigrants. His father was a brewer and later led the Forest Park Zoo. He encouraged his son to draw, and that he did. Theodore was influenced by the animals he saw at the Forest Park Zoo. After a successful career as a cartoonist, he translated his talents into children's books, and Dr. Seuss was born. Years later, his legacy is being celebrated in a new museum, The Amazing World of Dr. Seuss, located in his hometown. We got a tour just days before the opening with Springfield Museum's president, Kay Simpson. You can walk along with us by viewing photos at wmpr.org slash where we live. When did this whole process begin to open the amazing world of, of Dr. Seuss's museum? 
So in terms of the origins of this museum, of course we opened the Dr. Seuss National Memorial Sculpture Garden in 2002. Um, this was an immediate attraction. We found that we were drawing visitors from all over the country uh, to the sculpture garden. Uh, they love the sculptures um, and it was definitely popular from the very beginning. One of the things that we found is that visitors loved the sculpture garden, but they wanted us to open a Dr. Seuss museum. So it has been um, the request uh, that visitors most frequently make um, to the museum management. So uh, in 2009, we found our opportunity to start to work on a Dr. Seuss museum. When we opened the Wood Museum of Springfield History, um, which is a, a building which is across Edwards Street. And in that you will find uh, just amazing collections of industrial artifacts like Rolls-Royce automobiles, uh, Indian motorcycles, and the Durier, which was the first gasoline-powered car uh, invented in America. So that meant that all of the history collections that were previously on display in this building, which is an historic 1927 building, all those collections were transferred over to the new History Museum and this building was available to be developed. And so we started to write grants to get seed money to start this project and over time we were able to uh, get funders more enthusiastic about the possibilities. Um, and at the point when we had raised $3 million, um, our trustees decided that they uh, would do a capital campaign. So we could actually raise $7 million. Um, the centerpiece of the $7 million capital campaign is the Dr. Seuss Museum, but we've made other improvements to our campus with that money. So we had been working with Dr. Seuss Enterprises on uh, the first floor um, and actually the lower level, which is called the Cat's Corner. That's a multi-purpose educational space. Um, we had been working with them for a number of years and then the family, knowing that we were in the process of creating this museum uh, that pays tribute to Ted Geisel, came to us and said that they would be willing to donate their collections of memorabilia and furniture and original artwork. So um, that was something that we immediately embraced and uh, we started to work on uh, actually developing the second floor so we could put this material on display. Of course that meant other things that we needed to do to this really beautiful historic building and that was um, to really address handicapped accessibility and to bring the building up to code in terms of installing sprinkler systems, doing HVAC improvements, upgrades to the electrical, all the sort of nuts and bolts, um, behind the scenes kind of work that's essential to really uh, bringing uh, an old building, an antique building, up to contemporary standards. And what does it mean for the city of Springfield to have this museum here? Well, it's, I think, very significant for the city of Springfield. Uh, Dr. Seuss uh, is our hometown hero. He grew up in Springfield. He became an international celebrity. Dr. Seuss passed away in 1991. Um, he's even more popular now <laughs> than when he was alive. 
Uh, so he is definitely someone that this city should be proud of and should celebrate. So I think it will be a beacon of uh, civic pride, but it's also going to be a tourist attraction. Um, Dr. Sue's stories are beloved uh, by readers from around the world. His um, books have been translated into 17 different languages and sold in 95 countries across the globe. Uh, so this is something that is going to be very meaningful for the city. The second floor of the amazing world of Dr. Seuss gives us a glimpse of the private life of the author and illustrator. Items from his life were donated by Geisel family stepdaughters Lark Gray Diamond Cates and Lee Gray Diamond. We are in uh, Ted Geisel's sitting room and Lee Gray tells the story of how when he got up every day he would sit in this breakfast chair, he would read the paper, he would have breakfast, then he would go immediately to his studio where he uh, would work all day long and then he would break for dinner, um, the family would sit on this couch, they would watch the evening news and then he would ask them to leave and he would read all night long. So he was a very well-read, very educated man. You can see in this area we have the books from his house. So these are the books that he was reading. Um, there's also this wonderful collection of hats. He loved hats. He had a closet that was filled with hats of every description and variety. Uh, you also see the two Emmys that he won. Uh, for his work and other materials. When he would go um, to different countries, he would just uh, collect little figures, um, just interesting curios that uh, he thought were fun, and he would have them around him as he worked and in his living space. And then I think from here, I'd like to take you in what Lee Gray calls the gallery. So in this area, Lee Gray has very carefully selected uh, correspondence um, from Ted Geisel to her, some of his drawings. Um, he would often uh, illustrate little doodles, little notes, and put them on her bed. So when she um, came home to visit, um, she would just find a note from Ted Geisel, uh, just a very funny, humorous note. Um, there are also other uh, photographs that, you know, he would draw on. And then on the walls, we have some of the original artwork. And, and some of it is amazingly beautiful, like this wonderful watercolor um, of two creatures walking in a kind of wooded glen. And when I look at it, I immediately think of Forest Park, where he spent so much time when he was a child. It's just beautiful and green. and and very idyllic. And here, um, Lee Gray selected a series of photographs of Ted from various points in his life. And there will be more photographs here. Um, they're currently being framed. Um, but you know, here he is as a boy. Uh, you can see him in one of the photographs, um, hard at work in a studio. That is, by the way, the same drawing desk that we have on display in the other gallery. Um, these are just photographs that she loved that 
You know, she felt really communicated the essence of who he was. Kay Simpson is president of the Springfield Museums, giving us a tour of the new museum, The Amazing World of Dr. Seuss. The next room she leads us into is a space she believes will draw visitors worldwide. Can you tell us where we are? We are in the recreation of Ted Geisel's studio. And as you can see, we have his original drawing desk. This is the desk that he worked at. We have the chair that he sat on. This was his favorite chair that he used when he was working. We have, as you can see, this incredible array of colored pencils. Again, these are all pencils that he used. We have some of the brushes he used when he was painting. Um, the rotary telephone, um, the studio was really the place which served as the area where he illustrated and wrote, but was, it was also his office. This is where he conducted business when he was calling New York to talk with his publishing company. You see his uh, briefcases. When he went to New York on business trips, he would use um, these briefcases to carry his material. Uh, so it's really this incredible glimpse into how he worked and um, the environment uh, which uh, actually surrounded him as he was in the act of creation. When we, you know, the museum staff that have been involved in um, this project, uh, we actually uh, traveled out to San Francisco to see some of the collections um, in Lee Gray's house. But really seeing all of the work together, seeing the recreated studio, when I first came in here and I saw it set up, it really gave me chills. And other people have said the same thing. I think it's almost like Ted just stepped out of the room. You just get the feeling of immediacy. You know, the other thing I, I can say about this museum, which has really struck me as we have, as the museum has evolved and we put up more murals and, and started to install some of the three-dimensional creatures, they all seem to be having fun. So, you know, what he depicted, and I think that's one of the reasons why people love his work so much, is everyone's smiling. They seem to be having a really great time so it's very upbeat, a very positive environment for visitors to come into, particularly kids, you know. It's fun to have fun. Our last stop is the ground floor. It's a dedicated educational space for children. So as I said, the, the museum really evolved in terms of its scope and um, we knew that it was going to be incredibly popular once we really got into the fundraising campaign and we wanted to uh, expand the capacity. At the same time, we wanted to provide visitors with an area where they could do some of the things that they can't do in the interactive area on the first floor of the museum. So we came up with this concept for the Cat's Corner multi-purpose educational space. So in this area of the museum, we are going to be offering hands-on activities whenever we're open to the public. So kids can actually come here and write and illustrate a book. It will be facilitated. There will be instructors um, 
staffing this space on an ongoing basis. So if we step in here, we can see that it's actually quite large. Um, it's all themed to Dr. Seuss. We will have tables set up, um, but the tables can be taken down and we can do um, performances here or other programs on an ongoing basis. So again, it will be open to the public whenever the museum is open and there will be activities, drop-in activities that we're offering for children and adults on an ongoing basis. So you're literally working to the last minute to get everything ready for the opening? Uh, it's true and you know when people come in and they see it in this state they they invariably ask the question, is it going to be open on time? And of course it will. I mean, it tends to look like this up into the last minute and then magically it just, it all pulls together at the last minute and it, and it we're ready to roll. We're ready to roll it out to the public. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Kay Simpson is president of Springfield Museums. Earlier this week, she led us on a tour of the amazing world of Dr. Seuss. It's a new museum opening on Saturday in Springfield, the city where Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, was born and raised. See photos of the museum on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Now coming up, we learn about another beloved children's author, Margaret Wise Brown. She wrote Goodnight Moon, among other classics. What are your favorites? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, lawmakers continue to debate health care policy in Washington, and millions wonder if they'll be insured in the future. On the next Where We Live, we'll consider the impact here at home, and we'll find out more about Aetna's plans to move its headquarters out of Hartford. We'll also talk to Dr. Rachel Pearson, author of No Apparent Distress, A Doctor's Coming of Age on the Front Lines of American Medicine. That's Monday. Now, is the book Goodnight Moon one of your child's favorites? In my house, my son loved the board book so much, the binding ripped. We had to buy a new one for my now 23-month-old daughter. And just like her big brother, she loves Goodnight Moon at bedtime, whispering hush along with the old lady in the book. What is it about Goodnight Moon that draws a child in? Reaction from parents to this classic is certainly mixed. We wanted to know more about the author. Joining us now is Amy Gary, who wrote the biography In the Great Green Room, The Brilliant and Bold Life of Margaret Wise Brown. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Good morning. We're talking about uh, Aunt Margaret Wise Brown and this book, Goodnight Moon. But when did it become popular? She wrote it a long, long time ago. It wasn't until really late in the 50s, because at the, actually at the time she died in 1952, it was not bringing in very many royalties at all. I think that what happened was the book had been out for like 10 years or so, and it kind of caught on slowly. And then as parents, like in the next 20 years then, 
after it was published, then the parents began having, or the children who had been read that book, um, remembered it. It was still in print. And so they started buying it for their children. It's just been exponential since then. And that's why the growth has continued on. And, and, it, and it touches into the heartstrings just in such a, a perfect way. And it allows a, char- a parent to actually play with the child while they're actually reading the book, when they're finding the mouse together, they're, you know, that, that rhyming verse, they can, they can uh, actually take that rhyming verse and play it with their own things in their own room. So it's interactive. Uh, you write in your book, In the Great Green Room, that when the book came out, Goodnight Moon, the New York Public Library actually rejected it. Well, they did not like, at that point, this is a whole new philosophy for writing for children. Instead of it being you know, this, this sort of high-level literature where you're giving lessons to a child or, or, or writing of something of, quote, importance. Margaret focused on the life of a child in their own home, at their own level of understanding, at their own, own level of comfort, um, using universal and timeless things, going to bed at night, eating breakfast, all these things that um, really surround a child as they are a little toddler. And that did not necessarily um, make for good classic reading that the libraries typically went to. I bet the library has many copies today. <laughs> I'm sure they do. In fact, they not only have that, they have the interactive. It's, you know, now, it's, um, now they have the iPad version, and, and it's just all sorts of wonderful ways in which they've taken that book and really allowed it to go into a child's life in many different ways. Uh, many people have heard of the book Goodnight Moon or Runaway Bunny, but not many people know her backstory, Margaret Wise Brown. You wrote this really interesting biography about her. How did you um, become introduced to her? And I understand now um, many of her unpublished works. It's something that you own and manage. Um, yes. Well, the, actually, Holland University is the copyright owner. That's uh, the university Margaret went to. But we do manage all of those. And um, so what we do is um, Margaret left behind... A, hundreds of unpublished manuscripts. Some, some actually were in the hands of publishers, and so we try to focus on those and get those, back, go, get those into print now because she was so prolific, no one publisher could keep up with what she was doing. At the time of her death, she had at least six publishers publishing her works, and she was writing music. She was trying to develop television and radio shows. So her, her works were just all over the... Uh, she couldn't stop writing, apparently. <laughs> so, um, so I first became interested in her. Um, I actually worked for a publisher and called on librarians. And when I started my own publishing company with a friend, we uh, interviewed our, friend, our librarian friends and said, what should we be reprinting? And every one of those publishers, I mean, librarian friends, came back, every single one, and said, you should be reprinting Margaret Brown, Wise Brown works. They're going out of print at a rapid rate. And that was true. Published, the only things that were sort of out there at the time were the, the big hitters, the Golden Books and the Goodnight Moon and Runaway Bunny. But she left, before she died, she had almost 100 books published. And then you, um, you got to know her sister, and you were able to help get more of these books published even after her death. Yes, indeed. Um, and it's been, it's been a great joy to be able to do that. She had... Um, one of the, uh, in fact, Westerly, Rhode Island has a library that contains a lot of her manuscripts, but her sister also had all these manuscripts that, that publishers and editors um, and also her illustrators sent in to sort of capture the mind of this brilliant woman at the time of her death. A, a friend of hers who lived in Stonington, Connecticut, wrote to all of her friends and all of her editors and publishers and said, please send anything you have on Margaret so we can look at how she thought, how she wrote, 
and it's still there at the library. People can go through it and understand the brilliant mind behind all of these incredible children's works. Um, and so when she, when she did that, um, some of the illustrators also sent in like book dummies, um, and that's when a, 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 someone will create a book to show how it is to be published. And Margaret's mind was so far ahead of technique, printing technique at the time, that she actually had to go in and create books to show how she wanted them to physically work, um, like creating pop-up books, which were, again, a very unique thing. She had die-cut books, which were books that were pressed with holes in them so you could actually send a mouse through a hole or have an egg come tumbling out of a hole in the book because she really wanted children to be interactive with the story. She felt that that would keep their attention, number one. And this was a time when the baby boom was going on, so there were so many publishers rushing to get lots and lots of books out there. Books were being sold in department stores and grocery stores. So uh, it was a huge growth for children's books, and she just hit at the right time and had all these incredible ideas. You mentioned her creativity, um, even the idea of glow-in-the-dark paint. Yes, she, she experimented with that. And um, her goddaughter told me that she came to her house and painted stars with that same paint, that luminescent paint, on the ceiling of her bedroom so that she could look up at her stars at night in the bedroom. So again, way ahead of her time on these sort of ideas. And that one never came to pass. She did die before that actually became, came to fruition. But it was an idea that she had. Um, and again, using, using sort of what was out there in the world and bringing it into the world of books. Um, this is where we live. We're speaking with Amy Gary. She's the author of the biography, The Brilliant and Bold Life of Margaret Wise Brown, in the Great Green Room, uh, The Brilliant and Bold Life of Margaret Wise Brown. You mentioned her creativity. Where did that come from? Tell us about her upbringing and um, how that fostered her career. Well, I think that her father was probably one of her greatest influences in keeping that creativity alive, even though he was very much a sort of a regimented, conservative fellow. He, he believed that women... Um, should be equal to men. And that was a very unique thought at the time. His sisters um, were both well-educated, and, um, and his family believed that the matriarch of their family when they came to America was the in greatest influence in all of their lives. There was a great family quote that was often um, shown to Margaret, which was, every generation of man, uh, of man in this family believes that they have a sister of greater intellect and, intellect and stronger character. And, and that was the influence that helped her um, live the life that was a little bit different. He didn't expect her to be, even though they were wealthy, he did not expect her to sit and learn how to play the piano and sew, although she did learn how to play the piano. But he, he let her go out, and, and she found an interest in the outdoors and, and shared it with him. So they would go and hunt together. They fished together. That was a very common thing for them to go out and fish together. They uh, sailed and played golf together, rode bicycles, swam in the surf. He was very much an outdoorsman, and he allowed her to be that too. So that creativity was there. So if you actually look at the, the body of her work, yes, there's Goodnight Moon, which just takes place in the, in the room. But for the most part, most of her stories are centered on nature. And she would go and study nature. She would watch how bees flew around flowers. She would spend time actually watching how nature worked and brought that into her stories time and time again. And she grew up, um, part of her life was in Long Island? It was. Um, she was born in Brooklyn. Her family moved to Long Island. 
at a time when there were lots of fields, <laughs> very few homes, lots of fields, lots of um, outdoors things you could do. So in any, on any given day, she could go and ride her horse through the forest and fields. She could play with her family pets, which included uh, squirrels and bunnies and cats and birds and dogs. And, or she could go and swim in the ocean, ride her bicycle through um, the town. So she had a lot of activities she could physically do. And she stayed outside much of the time and continued that into her adulthood. She spent as much time outdoors as she could. She also had an interesting love life. Tell us about the relationships that she had uh, uh, with Michael Strange, uh, who was a woman, and also Rockefeller. Yes, she had um, really sort of three great loves of her life. One was Bill Gaston, who lived in Maine, and, 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 and because of him, she ended up buying a cabin in Maine near him and spent a lot of her summers in Maine where she said she would fill her well of creativity and then go back to the city and, and put all of what she'd spent um, in, sort of savoring in the woods and of Maine and the fields and, and ocean and bring it back to New York and write for the next part of the year. Um, but Bill Gaston was somebody who was obviously uh, not committed enough to marry her, so she was drifting along with that relationship. And she came across this woman who fascinated her, Michael Strange, who was pretty much, I think, what Margaret wanted to be in many ways. She was very outspoken. She was elegant. She had this incredible uh, soothing voice. She was, came from a very wealthy family. Her, her original name was Blanche Ulrichs. But instead, after her marriage to John Barrymore, she began going by the name of Michael Strange. And Michael was androgynous, and so uh, she really did sort of live her own life the way that she wanted to as well. And to be together, though, it was still not considered appropriate for them to live together at that time. So they had apartments across the hall from each other in New York and kept that relationship up until Michael's death um, around 1950. Uh, Michael died of leukemia. And, in fact, even at the hospital, I recount in the book how sad it was, it broke Mar- Mar- Margaret's heart because the doctor would not actually let her be in the room with Michael at the time of Michael's death because he knew there were, there, were, there were lesbians and he did not want that at his hospital. So he actually physically kept Margaret away from Michael at the time. It was truly heartbreaking to read Mar- uh, Margaret's recount hmm. of this. Um, anyway, uh, so she then went on to, after that, uh, met a, a young man. He was almost, I think, 18 years her junior and he was a sailor who uh, was the son of a Carnegie and a Rockefeller. Margaret was related to the Carnegies by marriage. Uh, her, one of her cousins married a, a Carnegie, and so she went to Cumberland Island, which was the family's private resort, and spent time there and met Pebble Rockefeller, who is still alive. He wrote the foreword to the, to the biography. Fascinating, wonderful man. His uh, real name is James Stillman Rockefeller. And he... Um, they fell madly in love and spent as much time as they could together until, uh, until Margaret's death at, at the very young age, I think, of, 19, of 42 in 1952. Uh, we mentioned that uh, people may know Margaret Wise's, uh, M- Margaret Wise Brown's books, Good Night Moon and Runaway Bunny. Uh, we do have a caller on the line uh, who wanted to uh, hear you uh, talk a little bit about her, one of her favorites, The Sleepy Little Lion. Oh, wonderful, Yes. <laughs> What can you tell us about that book? Um, so th- that one in particular, uh, Margaret, again, wanted to try to have all of these different um, techniques brought into children's publishing. So there were these photographs of this lion, um, little, little baby lion, and 
her idea was to have to write a story based on those photographs. And at the same time, there was an author in France who wrote another book based on those same photographs. And the stories were entirely different, but it was a, a, a you know, an under, a, sort of a, a, a way in which they could print the books with different text underneath. So you still had the, the option to have the, the photographs laid out correctly, but the stories were entirely different. And it just sort of showed how, how Margaret liked to challenge the norm with publishing. And first of all, it was very unusual to have photographs in a children's book at that time, a full story of photographs. It was, they certainly appeared in encyclopedias and so forth, but to have a story based on photographs was not the norm at that time. They were generally illustrated. So again, breaking the boundaries of typical children's publishing. Now, I know that some of her uh, books have been released, uh, Good Day, Good Night, and North, South, East, West. Talk about the decision to release those. Well, um, it, what we try to do in every circumstance is understand where Margaret was at the time of her death with those stories. And if they were certainly in the hands of a publisher, which both of those were, um, we wanted to bring those out. And um, then you try to find the right, we, we try to find the right publisher slash illustrator to go with those stories. And North, South, East, West is a great example of something that even today, Margaret's idea for how that book should have, or how she wanted it published, still can't financially, physically be done. Um, she had, uh, she wanted that book bound on four sides, and it was to be cross-cut. This is a, this shows her brilliance. It was to be cross-cut, and it was to be opened um, and read in the round. So the, the, the north flap would open, and you'd read a portion of the story, the east, and, and you would go around until you got to the very bottom of the story. And then she wanted this pop-up barn to come up from the bottom of the book, and she actually physically crafted one of these. And that one then spun on a toothpick. The, the weather vane, sorry, the weather vane would pop up and spin on a toothpick, again, going north, south, east, west. So her idea for that book is incredible. And when you see the actual um, dummy of this book, it is an amazing thing. And, um, and but, Amy, we're actually almost out of time, okay, but right. you've learned so much about Margaret, the writer, the adventurer, the businesswoman. Uh, what's one lesson that you hope people will learn about this woman that uh, many people, again, don't know her by name? I think that she did, um, I'll quote Pebble, he said um, on, her, on her tombstone, he, he wrote, you gave us a window into living. And I think that is probably her greatest legacy. She gives children a window into living she gave, through this, hopefully through this biography, I give a, people a window into how, to, how she lived a really unique and different life. Any more plans in the next year to release a new Margaret Wise Brown book? Oh, there's still a couple in the works. Um, I think Harper has a couple more to go, and a company called Paragon has a couple. And then I think we have one more from uh, Random House coming out. So, yes, there's still more coming out, but I think we're about, we're about at the end of <laughs> what we can actually um, look at and publish with her, but she's, her legacy goes on. I want to thank Amy Gary. She is the uh, author of the In the Great Green Room. It's the brilliant and bold life of Margaret Wise Brown. Uh, you may have her book in your house right now, Goodnight Moon, Runaway Bunny, and so many others. Amy, thank you so much for your time thank today. You. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.